<laughs> Welcome to the new normal where people share the real, the raw, and the risky moments of their life. It's a piece of their history. It's our story. Come, share, whether hilarious, heartbreaking, or maybe even a bit crass. We want to hear from you. We want to put you on our virtual stage for the world to benefit and for you to have a great time. So welcome everyone to The New Normal. This is a new podcast that is part of a very beautiful project launched from Beijing in 2020. It's called The Great Human Connection. We will slowly throughout this podcast and other podcasts explain to you what The Great Human Connection is. The idea is it's a great human connection in which everybody from everywhere around the world gets to share We wanted to say COVID stories, but actually we're not going to call them COVID stories. It's just the stories of what's happening to you in 2020 because this year is weird by any definition. COVID is probably the highlight, but it brought with it a bunch of other stuff that made it even weirder. People are stuck in different places. Families are split up. People are people have been stranded on cruise ships for months, so it is a weird year. But the idea here is to really document The Great Human Connection started by documenting people's stories from this weird year a while ago. They've been doing it in every possible way. They are collecting written stories, they're collecting articles, they're collecting videos, TikTok videos, and now we have launched our own podcast. Obviously, the first one is going to come from Beijing because we are based in Beijing, but all of the people who've been contributing to The Great Human Connection story collection are going to be producing podcasts on their own. So this podcast is going to start a chain that is going to come from all over the world. And this is why we call it the new normal. Different countries are now in different stages of this thing. We in Beijing are currently, as we're recording, experiencing a small break. But we don't know how long it's going to last. We don't know when the next outbreak is coming We don't know what's going to happen with the rest of this year. And we know that our friends and family and people that we love and care about are in different countries going through completely different experiences. So we are here to share our story from Beijing tonight. But all of you are welcome to share your stories in other new normal podcasts. I'm Gail. I'm based in Beijing for almost 20 years now. I work in media. I host and produce my own lifestyle show on Radio Beijing International. And through this show, I got to meet the people behind The Great Human Connection, host them on my show, and be invited to participate in this awesome podcast. And I'm very proud and very honored to be here. Today, I have two guests who are also based in Beijing, who have some pretty unusual stories to begin with, but definitely unusual COVID stories. And we're going to let each one of them Shortly introduce themselves, tell you who they are, where they're from, and what they do in Beijing in normal times. All right. Hello. Thank you, Gail, for having me on here. My name is Todd Coons, and I've been in Beijing for about four years. Uh, my wife and I have been married for quite a while, and we took this rapid, uh, this, this radical <laughs> step of uh, selling our house, uh, giving our cats away, um, packing up our car, and just looking for a new life somewhere. And uh, we found it here in Beijing. We started out teaching English. And then uh, after two months here, 
were surprised by my wife becoming pregnant with our very first son after all these years of marriage. So we had just gotten here. We weren't going to turn back around and go back. So we had him here, and uh, we've been here ever since. And since then, I've worked as a kindergarten principal in a, for a couple years, and I've transitioned a little bit out of that into another full-time job as a marketing manager for a company called App in China. And this company simply helps foreign companies put their apps and their games on the Chinese app stores. Android app stores, um, Apple app store. Also, uh, if you wanted to publish a game on a PlayStation or on Steam or an online game, the process of doing that in China is very complicated. There's a lot of government regulation and licensing that's required that most foreign companies are not familiar with. And also, if you don't speak Mandarin, it's very difficult to navigate. So our company is that partner that these uh, companies, big and small, use to uh, publish their apps and games in China. My other guest has been a guest on my show before, and we are sharing a passion for audio and sound. And we're kind of in the same business, but you're doing something a lot cooler than me. Jerome, tell our listeners a little bit about who you are and what you do in Beijing, because it is cool. It's always nice to talk to someone who appreciates my work, sound, which is sort of a mysterious field. My wife said, you know what? You're terrible at explaining what you do. You should talk about it as the Photoshop for sound. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's what we should say. <laughs> I agree with you on this because we are working with sound at a time in history where it is digital. And we are just doing this podcast and you and I are looking at a screen. We're looking at what we're recording. And, and this is a privilege that we have today working digitally that we can see sound. When people started doing this in my station in the 1950s and 60s, they couldn't see anything. They were recording and then they had to cut tape. And they could only hear what they were doing, but they didn't have the ability to control visually sound say oh you're too loud you're peaking here um you should be a little bit smoother you should drink a little bit of water because it doesn't look nice on the screen so yeah today we're photoshopping sound yeah and it's uh, it's it's nice we have this technology it allows people to do so much more than they could where you had to go to a studio um so yeah my studio in beijing is is kind of where you go you want it done really well but of course it's not the only way anymore <laughs> <laughs> so uh it's 10 years this month for me in china and i um i feel like you know i have a lot to, to say oh wow it, it it was a good 10 years it was really worthwhile i'm glad i came and and but it's definitely not been easy uh i i came actually before that to work with a uh, foreign artist here who needed a producer and then it was hard long distance so i came eventually and i kind of fell in love with China and the people and I was like this is this will be so much more exciting than Canada I mean what can you do in Canada you know <laughs> so I, I I was like I gotta move to China and set up my studio but how on earth am I gonna do that that's like no small feat but anyway if you want to do something bad enough you do it you find a way to do it and I did it and it was it I, I have to say it was rough in the beginning okay uh, an example for you, the four months after I moved here, my studio caught fire and burned basically to the ground, except for one room that had the computer with my work on it. <laughs> so, and, and I had people willing to pay me, even though I didn't have a studio who I were working with, they said, we'll wait for you to build a new studio and we'll give you like money up front. And so I was like, well, I guess I'm meant to stay. So I, I built a new studio and I had the money and the I had my work. I didn't have to start over. I had the work I was working on. It wasn't destroyed. 
but everything else was. So it was a confirmation I should be staying in China. Um, and since then, working on music more more or less, I and, and voice recording, I've expanded to do more film and game work because not only I love it, but it, that's what's really growing in China. And music has been stagnating until the last year or two. It's been very slow to develop uh, because of the cultural complications, but it's it's now starting to Im- improve, and um, it I'm I'm sort of putting more effort into that now too. We can do a really a whole show about I think gaming because all of us are somehow involved in what's happening right now in China when it comes to esports. Esports is high on the agenda right now for the Chinese government for various reasons. Might deserve another podcast. But I'm taking you guys back to the beginning of this year. Jerome, we're soon going to talk about recording artists because there is a double problem there. One that is a regular problem. One is a 2020 problem. But I just want each one of you to give me a quick review of where did this thing catch you? What was January 2020 looking like for you? What was it supposed to look like for you? Because we all started this year with a lot of hopes and plans and in China the year actually starts after Chinese New Year it's important to say even though January 1st is the beginning of a fiscal year or business year when you're doing business in China when you're working in China everybody says after Chinese New Year after Chinese New Year now this usually happens somewhere between the last week of January and the second week of February but the year actually kickstarts in China after Chinese New Year So we all started because 2019 was a good year in, in all industries. I think business was good. Hospitality was good. Media was doing great. We all were very looking forward to, very excited about this new year, new decade. And then January doesn't look good. Where were you when you hit COVID news for the first time, Todd? Well, it was, uh, we were getting ready to start the new year with Chinese <laughs> New Year. Like a lot of people in China, we had travel plans. And uh, my family uh, decided that we would go back and visit my parents in Arizona. And uh, they left, my, my wife and my son left a week earlier because I had some work to finish up. And at the time I put them on the plane was about the time that we were starting to realize there was this thing happening here and it was getting kind of serious. Uh, nobody really knew how serious it was yet. And when I put them on a plane there, I flew over to Seoul. And I was going to spend about five to six days working in Seoul. And then I had a flight scheduled back to Beijing and then from Beijing to join them in Arizona. After I landed in Seoul, the news was coming out more about what was going on in China. People here were wearing masks. And you could tell the Chinese tourists in Seoul because they were the ones running around with masks on and most, people, most others weren't. I think at that time, everyone still thought this was a China problem and nobody knew the real extent of it. And then I'll never forget uh, one night as I was going to bed, I think it was after my third day there, I got a text message on my phone in Korean. It was a local sort of emergency messaging system from the Korean government that said, everybody needs to wear your masks. And the very next morning, I woke up and started walking on the street. Suddenly, everybody was wearing these masks. And now, I didn't take it as seriously, you know, as many of us weren't quite sure if this was that serious or just people overreacting. So I wasn't really walking around with a mask. But on about the fourth day or so, I was down in the uh, subway station. You know, Korea has a, Korea, uh, Seoul has a lot of underground shopping areas. And I was in the Gangnam shopping area, and I was walking around. Most people around me had masks. 
and I got a tap on my shoulder. And when I turned around, there was this young girl, she's probably high school, and she, I think she was Korean, and she was uh, holding out her phone to me. And on her phone, she had translated a message into English, and it said, um, you don't want to get a catch a cold, is what it said. And in her other hand, she was holding out a mask for me. Oh, <laughs> that she was, gave you a She mask. gave me my very first mask <laughs> in Korea. And oh, I took it, and I, oh, I, I was trying to thank her. I forgot how to say thank you in Korean. I said thank you in Chinese. Yes, yeah, and I, I don't know if she doubled back on that or not. But, um, but then she, she looks at me, and she goes, ah, ah China, very dangerous. Oh. <laughs> I said, yeah, I guess so. And thank you for the mask. And she skittled off and we had a laugh. And it was a really nice moment that we shared. And that was the mask I wore for the next couple of days. And then at that point, uh, I realized things were getting hairy. And it was probably going to be a better idea for me to change my flight. To instead of go back to Beijing and take a flight there, just see if I could get a flight straight from Seoul. And uh, the airlines at the same time were allowing this to happen without cost. Uh, that was just like a couple days before I decided to do it. So I called the airline, got the flight changed to leave from Seoul, spent a couple extra days in Seoul to catch that flight. And with, with just one small backpack of the stuff that I had packed for Seoul, I went to, visit, to uh, join my family in Arizona. And there, what was supposed to be just a two-week vacation turned into uh, a month and a half. We are recording this almost the end of August. And it's important to tell our listeners that you're alone right now in Beijing. Yeah. That your wife and your kid are not here. No. They got stuck in the States. You know, um, hindsight is twenty twenty. <laughs> Middle of March came around and things were clearly calming down in China. And things were we were getting pretty nervous about how things were going in the States. Um, not a lot of people were taking it seriously. We weren't excited about what was happening with the government. But I happened to have a work visa and permit that was expiring in April. So it was very important for me to make sure I was on Chinese soil to get that taken care of because it's kind of hard to do sometimes from abroad. So I talked to my wife and I said, look, I think it might be about time for us to go back uh, to China now. And she said, yeah, I get that. But I mean, I have a three-year-old. School's closed. All the play areas we used to go to are closed. The parks are closed. Everybody's staying inside on lockdown. What am I going to do with him in the apartment you know, for, forever while you're working? And who knows how long that could go? Sounds boring. So she said, look, uh, you go, and then we'll follow uh, once school starts. And we realized it might be a couple months. You know, we, we, we thought it might be a little while. We were prepared for that. But the backup plan was, well, if, if you really want to come back, just hop on a plane and come back. It might be a little more difficult. It might cost a little bit more, but you'll be able to come back. Well, after I landed in China and I went through my quarantine, about halfway through my quarantine, about seven days in, uh, the government, the day before they announced they were closing the borders. I'm, I'm sorry, the day before they closed the borders, they announced they were going to close the borders. And we got that news. So there's no way you can book a plane ticket and make plans and leave, you know, in like 12 hours. So I, you know, got on the WeChat, video chat with my wife and I said, hey, guess what? China is closing the borders tomorrow. You're not going to be able to come back. But we were like, oh, I mean... It can't it's last be that a long. Few weeks. It might be a few weeks, might even be a couple months. But you know, school hasn't started anyway. This is really just following along with our plan. Little did we realize that here we are, uh, going into our sixth month apart now, and the borders are just now starting to open up. 
but it is a bit of a process to get them over here. It requires special approval. And then uh, the flights are very limited between the states. Uh, actually, we heard news yesterday that they just doubled the number of flights between the states and here. So I think it went from five flights to ten, but each one's only leaving once a week. So um, we're hoping that very soon we'll be able to get them back here. But it has been um, increasingly more difficult, you know, <laughs> not having them here. <laughs> Jerome, your family is here. They're from here. Your wife is Chinese, and you have also a kid here. And this first few months were extremely difficult for us who live here, and this is home for us work-wise, because we needed to understand what is happening to work. Is there work? So I work in media, and we had to, first of all, understand what kind of media is happening right now. Is it all news? Are we all talking about COVID? I'm a lifestyle journalist. There was a question, is there still lifestyle? Later on, there was an ethical question. Even if there is a lifestyle show, am I okay doing a lifestyle show? Is this the time everybody is going through horrible things and are we going to be talking about restaurants and bars and performances and, and art galleries at a time like this? You told me a few years ago when we recorded an interview that you just touched upon it right now as well. Music was difficult here because it was difficult to find artists and artists didn't have the awareness of what recording artists and just the playing artist means and it took a lot of time and at the end of last year you actually had a few very very promising recording artists starting projects with you and i'm sure you guys were planning to to move on with that at the beginning of the year what happened there well long story short um my my american client working on one of those projects is living in bali <laughs> he's moved to bali <laughs> so he's not coming back that's uh that's what it's happened one of that. those people who got stranded on their vacation yeah. spot and ended up living there they have to live there now yeah mm. so that project is is stumbling along in some form but it's not going to be the same the the goal and the, and the plan with the project is not but the nice thing about that he's planning to bring his his partner who's living here over there in the in the future and work together in in Asia somewhere else and just give up on the idea of China. So it's not dead, but it's changed. We couldn't record. Um we have a number of songs recorded we can work on. But you know, I have to say that yes, my family's here, but I do have a family member uh and of course my extended family in Canada and my I have a 9-year-old son actually in Canada and this is really he's supposed to be here after school finished and he couldn't come come and um it's it looks like I'm it's going to be a year where I haven't seen him and it's really that's the hardest part other than that I've come out really lucky with with this covid because uh I had two projects ongoing that were not related to music that I could continue doing one of them is really big and it I can't say what it is but it's a really big game that's going to be launched next month and i was able to continue because my compound allowed people to come inside including people who work for me and so we were able to continue working we had to escort my my engineer to to the studio with a private car which was fine uh in the beginning in march she started end of march but we were able to keep on schedule and on deadline with a very important client which is which was great because they were super impressed especially when in, they went into lockdown and realized what we had what had gone through they were really impressed that we were able to meet a deadline given everything going on and our compound allowed the talent to come in and record vip celebrity talent who were also willing to 
come and record even though things were not so safe. So it, it saved my business, basically. But it has a lot of things have really changed. And I'm just lucky that I happen to be working on a film and on a game that could be done despite everything going on. If I was only doing music projects, I, I would be dead, you know, basically. But I had other things, so... We're having listeners all over the world listening to this, and maybe here it's a little bit important. You just said, my compound, my compound. It's important to explain to our foreign listeners what our residential environment in China, in most cities in China, especially big cities like Beijing or Shanghai or Chengdu or Guangzhou, why was it so possible for the Chinese government or for authorities, your local authorities, to have this very efficient we we were not really under lockdown, but we were under some kind of control of, of movement. And it allowed us to really get the virus under control. You're living in a residential compound. I think back home we would call it a gated community. The problem is that I think in English, when we say gated community, we take it to a very Beverly Hills kind of privilege and money. Yeah, that's what it seems like, but it's common here. It's common here. So in China, we are living in, we are now inside an apartment compound. And we call them compounds simply because the compound is usually one or two or three or ten buildings. But they are surrounded by a fence. They have designated gates. And we have guards at the gates. And this is why it was possible. A compound like mine that usually has six small gates now only kept the two big ones open with guards sitting there. Today we're using an app here in Beijing. Everywhere you go, if it's a shopping mall or bar or restaurant or Starbucks, you register so the app knows where you are. And if there was a confirmed COVID case over there, it sends you a message, you should go into quarantine. But back then it was the guards, right? We're registering pen and paper. Who are you? What's your ID number? What's your phone number? Which apartment you're coming to visit? And how long are you going to be here? That was pretty much how we're doing it here in China. Did you find it as a foreigner living in China kind of reassuring, knowing that at the community level, someone is in charge of, of the movement, of also delivery men and, and just any visitor to the compound? Yeah, I mean, uh, in our compound, I took it a step further. They had a certificate you could put on your phone and show them. And you could give that to people that you know you knew were safe to let in, and they they could come in. But at one point, for they weren't letting foreigners in the compound. So, and 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 it was ridiculous because they were you know their their app said they're fine, and they were here in Beijing for months. So I was I just snuck them in in the car, you know, <laughs> drove them in in the back seat. But you know, it, it there was there are compounds that wouldn't even allow some of my clients into their compound as a foreigner into their home and they had to leave China because of this. So there are cases where it was it was overly extreme and you could say that it protected people from, you know, the virus and it kept things healthy, but it was it was in some cases ruined people's lives as well. It it was it was a uh, nobody really knew how strict to be sometimes with it. Some companies let people in, some didn't, and some only let people in who lived there and were registered. Uh, and then there was, like I said, the ones that didn't let people in, even though they were living there and registered. Mm. And so there was this this issue that a lot of people faced. And I think it was good, but I think it was too extreme. And my compound kind of got it right, where it was very strict, but it wasn't over the top. Like, otherwise, my business would be ruined if they didn't let anyone in. Uh, I mean, I don't know how I could work, so... 
And they didn't let me in at one point. You know when there was there was a point where foreigners were, were very feared when there was cases coming in from overseas, and mm. they wouldn't let me in at that point <laughs> either. So I think there's another aspect of COVID that nobody's happy to talk about, but at some point we're all going to have to talk about it. I don't know when, and I don't know in what country, maybe different countries, different times. It, it, it kind of exposed a lot of ugliness in human behavior. Now, some of it was simply misunderstanding and, and not knowing who is whom and where they're coming from and what's happening. But some of it was, it really felt like people were looking for an excuse to just be nasty or to say nasty things about people from different places. I was in China during SARS in 2003. And the funniest thing was that I was traveling in China during this time. And in China, everybody thought I came from white people. So whenever we took a sit on a train or a bus, people would just move to another chair and don't want to sit next to us. Well, my family in Canada, they thought it came from Asian people. So whenever there was an Asian person walking down the street, they would cross the street to the other side. And I was at that time emailing my cousins and I thought, this is ridiculous. Here they're afraid of us and you're afraid of them. It's a virus, you know, it just, it jumps on whatever it sees. It doesn't care as long as you're... A reasonable host you're not a dog or a cat you're good yeah so that is something that we saw again this time unfortunately I think we saw a lot of world I don't know if leaders but all kinds of influencers jumping on that thing what was the feeling back and forth for example for I, I ask you because you're an American. I'm sorry because, okay, I'm falling into that pit here. It's like, talk to the American about this. Why I'm not, not? I'm not trying to talk to the American about this. I'm trying to talk to a person whose family is right now stuck over there and you are over here and you're experiencing that feeling in both places. That That's ma mainly it. It's definitely a bit surreal. You know, when I first came back here uh, during that month and a half I was in the U.S., you know, things shifted a little bit. At first... We saw on the news these reports of people, you know, Chinese people or just Asian-looking people in the States or in London who were being discriminated against and people weren't going to Chinatowns and eating in Chinese restaurants and there are Chinese people standing out on the street with signs kind of saying, I am not a virus, you know, come hug me. And so there was some awareness of that issue. And then we heard about that sort of thing happening here in China where, again, like you said, people, foreigners once they started to kind of get the virus under control here, foreigners were seen as the next possible threat. And nobody knows by looking at you if you ever left the country or not. But uh, that was that. Fortunately, I didn't ever have to face any of that when I came back. I was welcomed back with very open arms. My me too, for that matter. Yeah, my community was great with me. Uh, the, it was so well organized, too. And I think that's what impressed me the most. This is something that, you know, we're, we really have been lacking in the U.S. And it's been sad and surreal to see that. But before I came back, I was in contact with my landlord, and she put me in touch with a community organizer here who is in charge of all of this, people who are returning. And there was a little WeChat group, and we connected on WeChat, and uh, he knew what flight I was coming in on. And when I landed at the airport, I took a Didi. Nobody met me there. We weren't at that stage yet where yeah. they were really dividing people out. I came in that sweet spot where it was a little more loose. But um, I took my own Didi back to the compound, and I went to the guards at the gate, and I explained to them I was just getting back. And they said, oh, did you talk to this guy? Yes, here's his WeChat. And they said, all right, sign all this stuff on this paper, take your stuff up to your apartment, and then begin your quarantine. And every day I had to report my temperature twice a day on the app, and any time I needed any food, 
I could order it using our handy ordering apps that we're very familiar with, and uh, a volunteer would come and uh, bring that food to my door. And if I had trash, I would open up the door and set it outside. At first, actually, they said I could walk out in my compound. I just couldn't leave the compound. So it was a little bit of a less strict lockdown. And we even had a little convenience store inside my compound. But I was nervous about that. I thought, all these people kind of know me, or at least they know of me. Are they going to be nervous seeing me out walking around, especially when I step into that convenience store and, oh, you're back from America? But no, they really weren't, especially at that time. I was able to shop there. And then after the first seven days is when they said, um, we just installed a alarm on your door. <laughs> uh, yeah, because regulations here were changing. also being made or formed as we went along. Because we're, we're forgetting now we're in an eight-month reality of COVID that everything is happening. What, even what's happening right now is happening right now for the first time. Yeah. And everything that was happening at any given moment this year was happening for the first time. And regulations were being drafted and implemented every day anew. Mm-hmm. And we had to adjust as well. Yeah. And, and, and it, was the, it was coming down from on high. You know, it was very much coordinated by the central government here in Beijing. Uh, it wasn't our community's decision to put a, an alarm on my door. You know, he called him and said, oh, I'm, I'm very sorry. I know you're not going to leave the, the door, but, you know, the government regulations have changed and now you're not allowed to leave your apartment. But we have volunteers. When you need these things or you order these things, just, you know, put my phone number in there and then we'll have somebody deliver them to your door and then you can open it and take it away. And that alarm senses when you open and close the door. And if you do it too many times, we'll be coming in to check to see what's going on. Uh, and so I lived out the, the last of my two weeks uh, in that situation. And, you know, it felt great. Uh, I felt supported. Um, I, it was, it was um, yeah, you know, it's just a week. It's just a week in your apartment. I didn't feel like I was being asked to do a horrible, terrible kind of, you know, freedom uh, in reducing thing. In fact, I felt very well taken care of. And I knew that all the other people in the community were going through the same thing. I specifically asked him, is this just foreigners you're doing this for? And he said, no, returning Chinese are also getting this treatment. So, uh, um, that Even was... returning Chinese from other provinces. It wasn't just people who came from yeah. abroad. It was for a very long time people who came from different provinces. Just the fact that you crossed a municipal line or a province line in China required you up until July to go into two weeks quarantine. And that was something that I think is important to say because it was equally implemented for everybody. I really do think that for the next episode or for one of the next episodes, we should go deeper into this whole concept of quarantine because I think as someone who's been through quarantine twice throughout this whole time because I moved around and, and as all my friends went through quarantine, we see it as completely different thing as maybe people in other countries see it because I see response and comments on social media and on generally the way people react to the idea that they need to go into quarantine. Maybe we should really talk about what you do and how you do in quarantine. But to bring back today's topic more to our personal experiences, because you two have one thing in common and you have this in common between the two of you, but also with a lot of the people, Chinese and foreign, who are here right now in August 2020 in Beijing. Families are split. We all have people, whether it is, I'm sure I'm not a mother, so I know it's a lot more difficult for people who are parents and their kids are not next to them. Uh, but I do have parents who are elderly parents and 
because we cannot fly and travel freely right now, I'm always afraid if something happens to them, I can only go out once and that would be it. I won't be able to come back home to Beijing because Beijing is my home for over 20 years. I lived most of my adult life here. I don't know how to live any other place, but if something happens, I will need to go. Sum up today's podcast by this feeling of being away from family. Um, you know, it has been, uh, like I said, increasingly difficult. Uh, I wouldn't say exponentially day by day, but just these last couple months uh, has been, uh, you know, especially because about a month and a half ago, we had a resurgence here. And just as we were seeing everything kind of open up and get to the new normal, we were going out, restaurants were slowly relaxing their rules. We They weren't even checking us at the gate of our compound anymore. There was that hope. Oh, yeah, great. Then now they're going to be letting foreigners in. And then when that resurgence hit, everything kind of went back onto a, I wouldn't say a strict lockdown, but it was kind of a mini version of what we had had before. And we were we had just opened the schools in Beijing for like two days, I think. We, we opened them on that Monday, and by that Thursday they were closed again because of this resurgence in the, uh, in the market. And even though that was very tightly contained... I mean, just because you lived in Beijing, you weren't under these these kind of high risk. They had already divided Beijing up into these zones. So if you were in this high risk zones, you might have to quarantine again or whatever. But those of us who never traveled through those or didn't live in those areas were, were, were on a more relaxed version of it. But me, I was like, oh, great. We're looking at at least another month before they're even going to think about opening the schools back up again, which means when are they going to let every, outsiders back in? So I do appreciate so much that the Chinese government has been so cautious. And uh, again, I think it's, it can be argued that there are not a lot of countries where you can have this level of control. Um, but from this side, having lived through it, feel like I've been very well taken care of. Um, it's a little sad to see what's happening on the other side of the ocean, uh, where I feel like there isn't a certain level of control and there isn't a lot of leadership, quite frankly, coming down from the top. And it's, it's very surreal. Uh, to see these things that I think are just easy mistakes are being made uh, and just kind of an ignorance, a general ignorance about the seriousness of this and what needs to be done that we almost kind of had here in Beijing from the beginning. Like people just started putting these simple things into place. Everybody kind of stepped up to the plate and it wasn't that it was easy for people, you know? I mean, people have lost jobs. They've lost businesses. They have sacrificed so much to keep themselves and their families and the general public safe. And I feel like now that's really paying off. Um, but in America, I just don't see the end right now. Um, we're really not clear where this is going to end. They're just starting to reopen schools. That's something I pay attention to a lot because I have a son. They're just starting to reopen schools and they're finding out, oh, that's kind of a bad idea. They're closing them again. Uh, and they're rethinking their plans even now because everyone seems just a little overeager to get back to real life without first getting this under control. That's something that China did really well. So... I think I'm more anxious than ever just to get my family back here. I know they're safe. They're taking care of themselves and they're doing the things they need to do. They're really smart about it. But it would just be really nice for them to come back here and be able to live this lifestyle that I've more or less been privileged to have for the last six months that they've been deprived of because they got stuck back there. Yeah, I wanted to uh, sympathize with Todd that, you know, he's one of the millions affected by these poor decisions in America that is, you know, keeping families apart. And, and it's, 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 if they took the approach to China, you'd be probably reunited with your family, but they could not 
and now he doesn't know when he's going to see his, his family, which is, is, is frustrating. For me, it's a different, if a different, different situation because Canada does not have many cases and they're doing very well at keeping it under control and, and telling Trump, no, we're not going to reopen the border on your schedule like you hope you're hoping for because you, you guys are, you need to get yourself under control first, which is good. But the bad thing is they have a very poor relationship with China which means they're not on the list, long list of countries now that are allowed to come back. And I think this is a really unfortunate where political stuff is getting in the way of things returning to whatever new normal that they should be. So I have no idea right now when I can go there or, or my son can come here. Uh, and I'm hoping that since they've now, as of this week, increased the list of countries that Canada will eventually be on there. I'm sure you guys are communicating with your family on a regular basis. Everybody's got their own favorite software, their own favorite app. But I'm going to ask you before we go about one little favor ritual. Is there a thing, a song that you sing, a joke that you make, a, a regular time of the week that you... Something that makes you feel that this communication as far away and difficult as it is, 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 is a new normal. What do you do? When you're talking to your son, when uh, three years old, he probably changed so much in yeah. six months. Oh gosh! But is there something that you do when you guys are talking, like a joke, a food, a ritual, something that you do together? You know, my son has gone through so many changes in the last five months, and I'm really also feel privileged to live at the time we do, because uh, many years ago, about twenty years ago, my wife and I lived in Japan, and it was a very different story. There was no YouTube, there was no Facebook. <laughs> We, we had email, at least, and long-distance phone cards. And so our communication with our families, you know, was pretty limited to audio, and it was a little expensive, so we didn't do it so often. And email, slow, and it's not, doesn't, not a good replacement for that face-to-face. -face. Uh, we communicate through WeChat video chat, which is almost like having them in the room behind a piece of glass. So that's been really nice. I don't feel like I've missed out uh, on so much critical stuff because I've been able to see every day we talk once or twice a day, and, uh, and that's really nice because I've been able to see him get more conversational, his vocabulary grow. He's starting to share ideas with me. You know, when, when he left here in January, everything was pretty one-sided. And, uh, and now, you know, it's so interesting to hear him talk about his day and show me toys he's put together. It's called attitude. You're not going to like it when he's actually back. Oh, you know <laughs> the nice thing is that I haven't had to deal with much of the bad stuff. It's like, it's like I'm a grandparent already. <laughs> but, um, but the reality is that he, um, we talk once or twice a day, depending on how busy either of us are. And, uh, on the good days, I can get a nice little wake-up call in the morning from him as he's going to bed in the States. And um, Mom reads him a story, and I sit and listen to the story as well. And uh, sometimes I, if I'm, if I'm particularly awake, I'll pull out a book that I have here, and I'll read him a story too. So that story time for us almost every day has been very precious and, and really nice. Yeah, Todd, Todd brought up a good point which is the technology makes it so you don't feel like you're so far away and you can you can interact and kind of get a sense at least of how they're doing and and what's changed you know and um that's been a godsend facetime wechat um and and but uh, for me i mean it with my son being older it's games and the games now can be played across any country we can play a game together at the same time which is really awesome uh, to be able to connect 
And that's, of course, what's really important to him right now. He doesn't want to chat that much, but he he want to play games. So. It's communication. Yeah, it's, it's really teamwork. Uh, it's really like cool that the games have gotten to this level where it doesn't matter where you are, you can play together. What do you play? Fortnite, Minecraft? No, he's not at that level. Luckily, <laughs> oh, okay. I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad he's not jumped into that. But he's he's a big Roblox fan, which has hundreds of games in it. And he's built his own game in there. And our, our original classic is uh, Clash of Clans, which we started playing on that, which is, again, it can play, be play not, played anywhere with each other. And even I can jump even, even with Roblox or, or that Clash of Clans with his friends and join, join in when he's playing with his friends. So it's nice. There's it's no, nice. Dad, get out of here. No, no, it's not. It's like, hey, Dad, you're in, you're in the group, you know. It's, it's not yet anyway. <laughs> no, that's cool. I mean, that's a new way to do stuff with your kids without being like, hey, Dad, get out of here because you're doing right. that cool stuff that they're doing. Yeah, you're like you're doing something they want to do and that you, you know, they want, you know, to they'd rather do with you than chatting on the phone or something maybe. <laughs> so it's a different way of connecting. It's a great way of connecting. I think this is exactly the best way to sum up today's first podcast of the new normal is by talking about technology because technology is allowing all of us to keep in touch with our families that are far away. It allowed us to work as much as we could during the first half of this year. And it's allowing us to sit here right now and do this podcast and send it out there to whoever it is that's going to listen, wherever you are in the world. Whatever COVID situation your country is in right now, whatever the new normal is in your place at the moment, this is all happening thanks to technology. And if we can at least count one blessing at this awful time is that it's happening at a time where we have pretty nice technology to help us feel together. Hoping some world leaders will jump on technology, start talking to each other and solve things. But we are here to at least keep you informed. Thank you guys for being with us tonight. Thank you. Thanks, Gail. And thank you for listening. This is The New Normal, and we were from Beijing tonight. You've been listening to The New Normal, whatever new normal means, at thegreathumanconnection.com.